Hello, everyone. Welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I am your host, Alex Wong. And after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson, to recap and walk through all of the major talking points of the documentary series. Before we get started, Russ, I just want to give a quick shout out to Soul Savvy and their entire team for giving the two of us the space to chat about this documentary series. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. Russ, before we even get into uh, action-packed episode five, how are we going to pronounce Tony Kukoc on this? Are we doing Kukoc, Kukok? Uh, I, I can't. I couldn't keep track of all the different pronunciations in this. It got pronounced wrong at the draft. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, that's your biggest moment in your NBA career up to that point because it's just starting and they pronounce your name wrong. Not <laughs> cool. But uh, I just wonder if the Team USA guys, like Barkley or Pippen, like, did they purposely do that to get under his skin, or what was going on? I would guess that Pippen. And Jordan would have done that. I don't know if Barkley would have. I feel like I don't think Barkley is that petty. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe Charles Barkley is petty. But I feel like Barkley is just like straight up about things. And we'll we'll obviously get to more of Barkley as we go. Yeah, I, I I think that was just pure mistake. So let's start with where this episode started with Michael's all-star game in '98 at Madison Square Garden. And we get a Kobe Bryant appearance and this episode is dedicated in memory of kobe what was it like watching those scenes of michael talking about kobe and and the interactions between them i mean honestly like you know on one level it was sad and on another level it was kind of exciting for me because the 98 all-star game was one that i went to the first one i ever went to was 97 in cleveland which was the top 50 players and you know just going to that and seeing a legend literally everywhere you turn you know, it's like you're getting wings at a buffet and you turn around and it's Moses Malone behind you. And it's just like, holy shit. But 98 was something even beyond that because, you know, obviously as all these guys talk about, MSG is like the mecca of basketball. It's like the world's most famous arena. I feel like I should be saying trademark after every phrase there. You know, and having Kobe, the young up-and-comer, come and like, you know, sort of throw himself at Jordan, the standard bearer, and obviously the the blueprint for his whole career you know it was just a cool moment to get to witness and get to re-witness and in this case you know have 40 year old Kobe look back at 20 year old Kobe as he kind of just you know went after his mentor yeah you know that's my favorite Kobe with the afro dunk contest going to prom with brandy and i thought there was a really good quote in there from kobe talking about how he truly hates having discussions about who would win one-on-one michael versus kobe there's thousands of people right now on twitter having that exact discussion i would imagine and he said that what you get from me is from michael and you don't get the five championships that i have without him which you know, I know Kobe and, and players get a little bit more maybe reflective post-career, but I thought it was it was cool to have him uh, on record saying that in, in this doc. I also think, like, it's funny how people in the media and fans try to answer that question when the end result, I think, and the, all Kobe was looking for was for the question to be asked. There isn't an answer. There is no answer as to whether Kobe in his prime could beat Jordan in his prime because, you know, obviously time travel is not a real thing. The fact that that question gets asked at all, that's the success. The fact that people are putting those two guys' names together in that way, 
That's all you really ever need. The question itself can't get answered. You just want it to be asked. I think that's a great way to put it, especially because you can tell the joy of Kobe talking about how Michael was so willing to give him advice and just, just being acknowledged by Michael probably meant the world to him. Right. And it's funny because I think I saw some comments on Twitter, you know, earlier regarding the first four episodes and about how we're not getting that much behind the scenes stuff. Like the behind the scenes is what we were sold on. And a lot of it has been kind of a, just sort of a rehashing of what happened. And I think in this 98 all-star game, we start to get a lot of cool behind the scenes stuff. We talked about it before we started recording. And like one of my favorite things about this 98 all-star footage was, you know, they show that dunk Kobe had when KG threw up the alley-oop and Kobe went and got it. And you see Grant Hill kind of in the corner of the frame, like, you know, not really doing anything. And then we get that great scene in the huddle where Jordan's talking about Kobe and how he's going to make him work on defense. And Grant Hill's like, I ain't trying to be on no poster dog. (laughs) You know, you got the older guys in the East just talking about like, he could do whatever he wants, but you know, I'm not going to be just sort of part of his coming out party. Treasure trove of wonderful jerseys as well. I I forgot that Sean Kemp on the Cavs was an all-star to be honest. That that was some leftover voting. That that was where your, you know, your legacy gets you a spot that your performance doesn't exactly uh, qualify you for. But yeah, I mean, between him and Tuan and obviously the the Grand Hill horse jerseys, which for some reason are now beloved. I never liked those, but yeah. And the pregame scenes in the locker room, you know, with Coach Larry and then Magic coming in and talking to Jordan and the other ultimate Chicago icon, Tim Hardaway, you know, and just joking around. It's, it's funny, like those scenes with Larry and Michael and Jordan, you could almost sense him ascending from his active career to the pantheon of the greats. You know, it's like Larry and Mike and Magic are the ones welcoming Mike into the, the next phase of not his career, but his superstardom and we'll get into this when we talk about the 92 olympics later on in this episode but my favorite one of my favorite subplots of this series so far is just the friendship and relationship between michael and magic like i love how different they are but they're same similar in many ways in terms of the competitiveness but just the reverence that Michael has for Magic in all the scenes that you see between them is great. And shout-outs to Rick Carlisle, getting even more airtime. A little cameo again. Uh, this time, it wasn't Mike shooting jumpers over him. So a better cameo for Rick Carlisle this time. And it's interesting also, like you bring up the Dream Team and how in that Dream Team and during the scrimmages and stuff, you had Mike going at Magic to prove that, hey, it was his time. And we sort of get the same thing from Kobe going at Michael. I mean, there's a scene in that where they're first taking the court and Kobe's like, I got Mike, I got Mike. And it's like, all right, if that's who you want, Rook. And uh, the guys in the East talking about Kobe in the pregame, you know, and Jordan saying about how he doesn't let the game come to him. Like he just goes and gets it and how he took so many shots. And if he wants to, you know, keep doing that, he's going to need to go get rebounds. And then we have that weird scene where they cut over, I think it's Tuan and Penny, and they're both sitting in their lockers and not saying anything. 
So it's just interesting seeing how the young guys react to the, the older guys criticizing another young guy who doesn't happen to be in that room. So we then cut to Michael's, well, quote unquote, final regular season game, at least in a Bulls uniform at Madison Square Garden. And he's in the locker room lacing up the Air Jordan 1 Chicago's, the, the first shoe that he wore at the Garden. Um, it was kind of cool watching Mike lace his own sneakers. <laughs> yes, I definitely enjoyed that. I'm still super angry at that whole moment. I can tell you exactly where I was when that happened. I was in my hotel room at the Benson in Portland, Oregon, with Tony Gervino, who was the editor of Slam at the time. We had gone out for some Slam-related activity. It might have been for kicks even, for the first kicks issue. That, that was probably it. And... Had we not been there, I would have been at that game because I was going to tons of Knicks games and there was no way I would have missed Knicks Bulls, let alone Jordan's final game in the Garden. And when I saw him first hit the screen, because it was a nationally televised game, with those shoes on, I was so mad, so mad that I wasn't there for that. It was just such an iconic moment, even, even it being like completely self-aware. I mean, the stuff Jordan was talking about with wearing those shoes, you know, it was, it was 100% a marketing opportunity. But at the same time, it was such a cool thing to do. I like, too, that there's a shot in the locker room where they pan to the Jordan 13s and Michael's talking about how innovation has taken a long turn. Now, Russ, I know you've recently been breaking out some old shoes to go shoot hoops. I want to ask you, when's the last time you hooped in a pair of Jordan 1s, and did you bleed in them? God, it's been forever. And uh, no, I definitely wouldn't have bled. I don't think my feet are quite as uh, sensitive to that sort of thing as Mike, and probably partially because I am nowhere near the athlete Michael Jordan is or even is right now at 50-whatever he is. I did once wear a pair of Jordan 2s to shoot at the United Center, when we went out for the Jordan 23 launch. And that was a pickup game where I actually got to uh, square up against Bobito, which was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, no, 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 no bleeding, no bleeding. I liked him ripping on Tony Kukoc for being a baby when they came out. And it's like, Mike, you're just making yourself seem even older than you are. And it was also funny that he did have the equipment guy lace up the 13s, which to the best of my memory, you know, he was keeping those on hand just in case. He, his intention, and I believe he mentioned it in the episode, was to change out of the ones at halftime, but he was playing too well. So he actually left them on. So his feet suffered for his game. 42 points, and this was his own bloody sock game. And Michael's probably a little better person than Kurt Schilling. We would I was going to say, it was real, and it did not keep him out of the Hall of Fame. And I liked him talking shit to Patrick Ewing in the locker room after. This is just going to be a recurring theme. Poor Patrick. And Patrick, at that point, you could see he had like a cast on his wrist, so he was already out. You could sort of see the writing on the wall for Patrick's career at that point, despite the fact that he would go on to play for the Seattle Supersonics and the Orlando Magic, which I kind of still don't believe. This gives us a flashback to... 1984 when Michael first strikes his deal and the Air Jordan line begins. So I guess the first loser of the week is going to be Adidas. I'm sure they're going to be dragged all across social media on all graphics, especially with the quote of Michael saying that, you know, he had every intention and wanted to sign with Adidas. 
don't don't mention the Justin Timberlake cameo yet because that's going to be a whole other segment for us. But uh, what were your favorites from from these flashback scenes? I, I like that scene in his dorm room when he talked about how he likes the NBA. You know, he likes Adidas. He likes Marcus Johnson. You know, and that's the thing. Like, it's crazy in hindsight that Adidas wasn't able to get him, but no one had the vision that Nike did to do what they did with Jordan. And part of that was because, you know, it's funny. Like, I feel like hindsight is weird sometimes because we look at Nike signing Jordan and like, we look at what Nike is now. They're a multi-billion international company. And back in 1984, they were, they were a 12 year old company that was just getting started. You know, I mean, they were essentially and one back then. And they didn't even get their start in basketball. They were, I mean, I think Falk pointed it out maybe like about them being a running shoe company. And it's true. Like they were a company started by runners for runners that happened to get into all these other sports. And, you know, they had the, the foresight and whether it was Sonny Vaccaro or David Falk or Rob Strasser or whoever else you want to give the credit to, to basically throw all their money behind Jordan. I think it's interesting too. Watching this segment, for me, it was just also, it feels like every segment that they do on this documentary, and I know a lot has been written about Jordan, Air Jordan, and Michael's deal with them. It feels like every segment that they do, it does feel like they're glossing over things just because there's just so much to get to when it comes to Michael's career. I wanted to ask you too. So there's when he finally goes and visits Jordan and Nike because Dolores, his mom, uh, implores him to just go and hear them out. Shout out to There's her this... being the real hero. <laughs> she is the real hero. And she was probably still depositing money into Michael's account at the time. The so. Nike family welcomes the Jordan family banner, that, that saying there. How much do you think that would be selling on eBay right now? Oh, my God. I mean, there, there are so many little unique pieces of that history that, you know, either haven't surfaced or are probably tucked away in Nike's archives somewhere. I mean, I'm sure everyone saw Aaron Goodwin posting that pair of black and red airships that they made for Jordan, and there's literally two pairs that they sent to him. Like, a game-worn pair of Jordan shoes from his very beginnings preseason time in the NBA. I mean, those are literally priceless. Like, I could see those selling for seven figures, which is crazy because that original pair of you know, they're airships, but they say Air Jordan on the back, will absolutely sell for more money than his entire first Nike deal was, which is kind of awesome. I also enjoyed that during some of the uh, of the time voiceover, someone said something about Jordan being as hot as a Cabbage Patch Kid. That made me very happy. And, you know, if you're going to do a segment on the Jordan ones, uh, I think if we were to make a list, the two people that you would want speaking on this would be Nas and Justin Timberlake, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you made a list of all the people in the world who could speak on that, those two guys would definitely be on that list. Um, I have no idea how you pick them over virtually anybody else, but um, sure. I love Nas. You know, Illmatic is still one of my favorite records of all time, but I don't think of Nas at all when I think about sneakers. You know, Justin Timberlake being on the brand Jordan payroll probably not the most objective person when it comes to Air Jordan. I mean, I could probably, if you gave me a few hours, come up with a few thousand people I would suggest over them, but I don't think we have that much time. 
Yeah, stay tuned for our bonus Patreon episode where Russ where, just where lists just off a thousand people. Yeah, no, just you, Russ. I'm out. No, it's just you, Russ. Um, oh, 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 even better. <laughs> I, for the record, I'll give you one name. I would have loved to hear LL Cool J talk about the Air Jordan because he was wearing Air Jordan ones on the back of his, I believe, his debut album, if I remember correctly. You know, and and that was the thing. Like, the Air Jordan One was one of those first shoes that entered the cultural you know, it was a cultural signifier when it was still very much a performance shoot. I'm going to go with cannabis. Shout out to anyone who got that reference. So we flash back then to 91 and the Bulls had just won their first championship, which we saw in the last episode. And now well, they're going for their, yeah. What do you want to touch on? Before we get to that, we did have the, we did have the, the first, I think it was the first in this, you know, introduction of Spike Lee as something other than a Knicks mm. fan. Um, yes you know, and kind of how they got him to do spots and, you know, how significant all that was. And the part of that that I thought was the most interesting was when they had Jordan talk about it in the current day. And he talked about how his game was his biggest endorsement. And now he doesn't get any of this if he's averaging. And I think he said like two points and four rebounds or something like that. And I kind of want to yeah, go I think back he was reading off Bill Cartwright's stats. I was going to say, I kind of want to go back and see which bull he was talking about. But yeah, he said his game did all his talking. And it was like, mm, okay, yeah, you're right. And then I think actually, if I have it right, that's when we went back to 98 and finished off that game first. And then we go to 91. And this is the year where the Bulls play the Portland Trailblazers in the finals. And I think through these finals, they're asking present day Michael to just basically uh, tell us, Michael, what was your secret motivation? And this one was not so secret. Everybody was comparing Michael and Clyde at the time. And we get some pregame footage with Marv Albert and Mike Fratello talking about how their their stats are equal. And these are basically the two best players in the game. And present day Michael says, Clyde was a threat. I'm not saying he wasn't a threat, but me being compared to him, I took offense to that. And then we get to... The game one where he hits all these three-pointers, which, which you know, tells us that we were in a different era because the finals record for three-pointers and a half at the time was four threes. And I'm pretty sure Steph Curry does that in the first six possessions oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of every game. I, I would like, though, to give an, another shout-out to the uh, whoever is pairing the music with the uh, seasonal highlight montages. Because before we got to the finals, we got the 91-92 season set to Black Sheep, which was, again, perfect. I mean, they're... They're undefeated with those. And I did greatly enjoy, although, you know, again, I, I think like I tweeted something to the effect that literally every moment in these documentaries could be its own 10-part documentary. And I would 100% like to see one on the eyes closed free throw against Denver, which I apparently was something said between him and then very young Dikembe Mutombo. And of course he hit it. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing moment that I think shows up a lot across social media uh yeah i would have loved them to touch on that any thoughts on the michael clyde argument at the time and i, and I don't want to preface everything with saying i tweeted this but you know someone was talking about it and my take was you could have two things are simultaneously true as two guards go clyde was as close to jordan as anyone got but at the same time clyde was a lot closer to the average nba two guard than he was to jordan like, sure, if you want to talk about them being, you know, the elite two guards in the league, that's fine. But Jordan was so far ahead. And I also think the under-discussed aspect of his game one performance and even his finals performance in general 
it was interesting that you had Magic Johnson, who was on the team Jordan beat the previous year for the championship, on the sidelines as an announcer because of his unfortunate HIV diagnosis. So for Jordan, this was a chance not only to show up the guy people were talking about as not his heir apparent because he was older, but, you know, as some, some level of competition, but also do it in front of the guy he had just beaten for a title. And we get something later with Magic where he talks about, you know, it wasn't enough for Jordan to beat you. He had to put your fo- his foot on your neck. And that, to me, was that kind of moment. Yeah, that was great. And I love that they were playing cards the night before game one, Magic and Michael. And Michael basically said, I'm going to give it to Drexler in game one. I guess there was no controversy of them playing cards as long as it was a home game and not at Atlantic City. But well, I was going to say, they that. were just in their hotel room. But, you know, it's funny, too, because, like, we always look at the shrug and the six three-pointers in the first half. But the Bulls just annihilated the Blazers that game. And I also wonder how much of that was due to, again, the prior year in the finals, they lose game one on that Sam Perkins three. And, you know, part of me thinks they went into that game one against Portland being like, we're not going to be in that same situation again. There's going to be no chance that they get a lucky shot to win a game. And, you know, they end up winning game one by, what was it, 33 points? I mean, it was just a slaughter. Yeah, the, the Bulls end up winning the series in six games. Do you have any other memories or things you wanted to add about that series in particular? I mean, honestly, that was, to me, that was a series that was settled in game one. You know, that, that one was just like, you guys are not going to come back and do anything. And, you know, there, there was a, a point when Michael Wilbon, I think, talks about earlier in that episode that that 92 Bulls team might have been the best of all the championship teams. And, I mean... It does get hard to differentiate exactly what, you know, was different with those teams. But I feel like having won the first one in 91, having been teammates that long, you know, Pippen's getting more confident. Jordan was more confident in his teammates. You, you just had that whole team rolling as a unit. You know, Jordan established himself in game one, which he didn't always do. You know, sometimes it took him until game two or three to really go, go off himself. And they just, they just weren't going to be beaten. And, uh, you know, afterwards, we found out the real secret, though, because Jerry Krause mentioned the word organization five times in his postgame interview. He's got champagne dripping off him and is making sure to mention organization every fifth word. And uh, it's kind of good Jordan and Pippen, I guess, didn't hear him or that there were cameras in there. Otherwise, he might have been stuffed into a champagne bottle and thrown out to sea. There's also a scene in the locker room where Michael's smoking a cigar and he tells Jerry, you can't smoke it. It'll stunt your growth. You mentioned this to me off air. It's funny because in this episode, obviously, it opens with a memoriam for Kobe. Um, they have not mentioned that Jerry Krause has passed away, even though he's been such a prominent character in this documentary so far. It's kind of weird. And I, I feel like, and I'm probably going to be struck by lightning for saying this. And if that happens, like, RIP me for the next one. But it's almost reached the point where the reverence being paid to Kobe, which is, I mean, is obviously deserved as, you know, befitting his status has sort of overshadowed literally everyone else who's died. You know, I mean, there are other people in this doc, Chuck Daly passed away, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's just recency bias or what it is, but 
hopefully there's a little bit of a longer in memoriam, you know, credits section, at least when this all ends in recognition of all the other people who've passed away, who we unfortunately don't get a chance to hear from, you know, with Kobe, I'm mostly happy that they did record segments with him before he passed away. So, and I bring up Chuck Daly because that was another great moment in that locker room when Jordan's talking about the Olympics, you know, when he still got the sweat drying on him from the finals and says that Chuck Daly plays me over 10 minutes a game, I'm quitting. And then he laughs to show he's obviously just kidding and clearly was, but I feel like all that stuff showed how much everything was bleeding into everything else for him professionally, where it's like, you know, Nike did those shirts that says basketball never stops. And like for Jordan, basketball never stopped. It was just occasionally interrupted by golf games. You're saying he wasn't going to quit and give his spot to Isaiah Thomas at the Olympics, Russ? <laughs> that was the whole discussion of Isaiah not being selected for the dream team was very interesting. I, I think like, you know, not only do you get Jordan's mindset of like, you know, no one's going to beat him, but it's like, like a lot of other things about Jordan, it was entirely unnecessary and overly cruel. Like, do we really need current day Isaiah Thomas talking about how hurt he was to not be selected for the dream team? I mean, Dominique Wilkins wasn't selected for the dream team. He was a multi-time all-star you know, the second leading scorer basically in the NBA. But, you know, basically that segment was one of those things that shows you how much, I don't want to say editorial control, but say that Jordan has over the storylines because a few minutes talking about Isaiah being left off the dream team just seemed unnecessary. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into the creative control stuff, especially, I believe, in the next episode. I thought it was a little bullshit too for Michael, present day Michael, to say that, you know, uh, the harmony and the camaraderie and the chemistry was great uh, on the dream team, which obviously he's not wrong about, but that Isaiah would have ruined that harmony. I, I just thought that was bullshit. He would have just been another guy on the team. Doesn't mean you had to play, go play cards with him. Well, it's funny. And, and like, you know, again, we'll get to it. And I, I think like, you know, nothing shows Jordan's competitiveness more than the fact that the two people addressed most in the entire dream team footage are Isaiah Thomas, who wasn't selected for the team and Tony Kukoc, who Jordan and Pippen made miserable on purpose. Uh, it's I mean, a Tony Kuk. It's Tony Kukoc, by the way, Russ, can Kukoc. you, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever yeah. you like. Yeah. I mean, we get more talk about those guys than we do about guys who were actually on the team. Yeah, that, that is a very fascinating point. And the 92 Olympics footage touches on, of course, that classic pickup game that happened at Monte Carlo. And for listeners who don't know the full story, I definitely recommend you trying to find, I believe it was NBA TV who did a full documentary on this. And Jack McCollum in his book about the Dream Team touches on this pickup game in full detail as well. I'll still never get over it. I always laugh when I see Magic just throwing a fit in that game. <laughs> and talking about, oh, it's Chicago Stadium again. They just brought Chicago Stadium. <laughs> NBA superstars, they're just like us. Oh, man. Um, I don't know if you have anything more to add to that because I do feel like, you know, the Dream Team and this Isaiah selection um, and the Tony Kukoc stuff, which, which I thought was, was brutal for Tony, these are big talking points that's been touched on. Like, was there anything new that jumped out to you or maybe something revelatory for you? There wasn't anything that new. You know, the, 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 the thing I guess that struck me was, um, and it's sort of part of a pattern 
Jordan and Pippen go out and just ruin Tony Kukoc in that first game and just utterly destroy him and take cheap shots at him in interviews afterwards. And, you know, Pippen says maybe he shouldn't come to the NBA. And someone asked Jordan about it and he just starts laughing. But, you know, and they do address it in this doc. Tony comes back and in the gold medal game, yeah, the USA buries Croatia again, but Tony has a really good game. And that sort of return is kind of Kukoc doing what Pippen did. You know, where it's like, when you try and compete with Jordan, you're going to get beaten up. You're going to get belittled. And if you come back and show you're strong enough to compete, he'll respect you. And I think that game is what paved the way for Tony eventually becoming a key part of that Bulls second 3 P team. I think there was definitely different levels of hatred or bitterness towards Tony when you look at Michael and Scotty. For, for Michael, I think, obviously, there is a little bit of the Jerry Krause stuff, and Michael is just, he has a quote-unquote competitive problem. But Scotty, obviously, with the contract negotiations and, and all of that, I mean, he was a lot harsher criticizing Tony after that first game when Team USA played Croatia, saying that if he's going to play at that level, I don't know if he can last two games in the NBA. Two other things on the 92 Barcelona Olympics for me. Well, three other things. Number one, so we can add Reebok to the list of losers for this week. So Adidas and Reebok are taking L's. I love how Michael was just so excited talking in the car um, about how he was, he's got something up his sleeve about draping his flag over the Reebok logo. And the fit of the week for me was Ahmad Rashad, who was wearing this all-over print NBA inside stuff tee in the lobby in one of the scenes. And shout-outs to Willow Bay, uh, a staple of my childhood from NBA inside stuff as well. The, the Ahmad Rashad, there's been a lot of Ahmad Rashad in this doc, and there will continue to be more Ahmad Rashad. I do like that he asked Jordan who would take the last shot as if there would be any other answer except Jordan himself and the fact that Jordan, of course, is lugging a golf bag through the hotel lobby because, you know, winning an Olympic gold medal is basically like a vacation. So we wrap up with a few other scenes and a few other topics that they touch on. And I think the next one, touches on the 1990 Senate race between Harvey Gantt and Jesse Helms and the infamous Michael Jordan line that Republicans buy shoes too. And Michael talks about that, saying that that was a statement that he made in jest on the bus and talks about how he never thought of, of himself as an activist and that he thought of himself as a basketball player. And that's where he devoted his energy. First of all, I did not know Jesse Helms, the Republican who was running against Harvey Gantt was just this like complete trash human. There's a clip of him talking oh, about yeah. how, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there would be segregated schools, but that would probably be my choice. Right. No, I mean, he was, that's the thing too, is like, you know, Jordan talks about not being an activist, but opposing someone like Jesse Helms isn't activism. Like it's sort of, well, it's hard to say common sense given the state of the America right now, but you wouldn't think that would be a very difficult decision. And the same Republicans who were buying Air Jordans before would probably still continue to buy Air Jordans because, I mean, maybe not, but I don't think you're going to lose that much. I think at some point you need to choose which side you stand on. Otherwise, people are going to choose for you. So, I mean, I don't know. I remain a little bit disappointed in that whole thing. Yeah, I know he said he donated money to the campaign, but at some point, I don't know if that's enough. I did think it was interesting that they were able to go all the way to Barack Obama for his feelings on it. And uh, just on the difficulty of being, you know, a cultural icon and a political 
I'll use Jordan's word, activist, which, you know, is a line that Obama has had to walk to, maybe a bit in the opposite direction, you know, with him choosing politics and then becoming this cultural figure. So it's hard to imagine anyone having better insight on that, except for maybe Nas and Justin Timberlake. Wow, I can't believe you just stole my joke. I had that at the tip of my tongue. I got to regroup right now. I think... (laughs) It's interesting to me, too, because you talk about creative control and Michael's involvement in this. This would be a completely different segment, I feel like, with different voices if he wasn't involved. Yeah, it would. It would. And I mean, you know, they didn't really give like the bigger context, contextual picture. Like, I don't even know what the balance was in the in the in Congress at that point and like, you know, how that would have tipped other things and, you know, how it would have affected anything outside of North Carolina, you know, but I do think if Jordan was going to insert himself in one political race ever while he was an active player, that would have been the one to do it. And, you know, he, he, he sort of, and I hate to say it, but I feel like, you know, Jordan's used this doc to make a lot of excuses, some of which are less believable than others. And, for this, he said something about how it would, you know, no matter what he did, it would never be enough for anybody, everybody. And I don't know, to me, that's such a cop out. Like, of course not. Of course, it's never going to be enough for everybody, but it'll be enough for someone, you know, and w- will it be enough for you? You know, you, at some point, you start to wonder how many of Jordan's decisions are being made based on what he actually believes, rather than I don't know, like, what is correct for Michael Jordan, Inc.? Yeah, I think sometimes maybe the most obvious answer is the correct one, and you could look at that as a business decision. Before we get to the some of the final scenes, I did want to ask you, what do you think is a favorite Air Jordan model for Republicans? <laughs> wow, that's a tough question. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. Let me, let me let, tell you what. Let's get back to that. When we're talking about episode six, or maybe at the end of this episode, let, let, let me think on it before we... Uh, okay, I'm going to demand an answer from you, though. All right, that's fine. So the, the final scenes, we, we go back to the last dance season, the 98 season, and we're heading towards the end of the regular season, and there's a lot of talk about ticket requests, and there's this wonderful scene where Michael, again, is just holding court in his own little room in the back of the Bulls locker room and, and Randy Brown comes in and Michael just pulls out of, out of his drawer a bunch of tickets and he's the ticket plug and he calls himself God. Um, some of my favorites of this and, and they do a montage of all the celebrities who show up and it includes Drew Barrymore, Wayne Gretzky, Jerry Rice, Muhammad Ali, John Cusack who was filming in Toronto. I need to figure out what he was filming. Prince, Spike Lee and my favorite was Seinfeld visiting the locker room and it was just awkward as hell when he was in there trying to make jokes about the whiteboard and walking out and saying hi to a player like that was pure uh, Seinfeld clout chasing I respect it and it's just very funny with literally two of the most famous people in the world at that point you know standing around joking with each other and I don't, I don't know they didn't seem to really connect <laughs> on a personal level at all you're right I did enjoy when he was walking out and he pointed to the one play on the board and he's like that's not gonna work you should get rid of that That was very good. Although, yeah, none of that interaction between Seinfeld and Jordan seemed nearly as authentic, I suppose, as the brief interaction between John Cusack and Bill Wennington on the sidelines. When Wennington says that Jordan doesn't pass him the ball at all, like, oh, you can almost feel the pain. 
I don't know, Bill Cartwright probably would have played that scene a little different. But yeah, yeah. And, and also shout out again to whoever's picking the music and the music budget for being able to play Outcast over the scene when they're playing the game at the Atlanta Dome. Um, you know, obviously a complete, not a throwaway moment, but nothing of significance and you still pl- you still paid for an Outcast snippet. That's That's good stuff. Yeah, no, we have to give a shout out to the soundtrack, which I think won this episode for me. I mean, they opened with the Nas Lauren Hill of I Ruled the World at the 98 All-Star Game. Tribe Called Quest was in this, Can I Kick It? Special Ed, I Got It Made. When they went back to 84, you mentioned Black Sheep and the Outcast here. So that that was a pretty action-packed episode in terms of touching on different timelines. Uh, Before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to add about episode five? The one thing that's been interesting for me through this whole thing is the balance of backstory and story. I think when it was initially announced, the idea of this last dance, I thought that a majority of the on-screen time would be spent on the actual 1998 season and playoffs. And in reality, it seems like we're about 80-20 on backstory and story. So I'm kind of hoping as we go forward that more of the attention shifts to 1998 and the actual last dance. You know, I appreciate them filling in all this backstory, but again, it, it all ends up seeming very lightly sketched. And it's harder to really dig deep into anything because there's so much they want to cover. So I'm hoping as we move forward, we get more of the actual behind the scenes 98 stuff, you know, and just let some of the backstory go. Or, I mean, obviously we've covered a lot of it by now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we're reaching the halfway point of the series at the end of this episode. And, you know, just looking ahead, I think eventually the timelines are going to merge. Like they still obviously have to cover Michael's third championship, retirement, going to play baseball and his return. And then they're probably going to have to touch on the 72 win season right and the start of the second three-peat but you're right like the the 98 storyline when you think about it has been pretty thin so far especially for a doc that i think was promoted very heavily as going to be about all this behind the scenes look at 97 98 but hopefully with the five episodes to go there will be especially when they get into the playoffs maybe they'll start fleshing that out a little bit more. So that does it for us for this episode. I want to thanks again to everyone for listening. You can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. And just want to give a shout out again to Soul Savvy for having us on this platform to talk about this documentary. And we will catch you on the next episode. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.